So how's everyone? It's good to see you guys here this morning. My name is Mike Lee. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'll be teaching you guys this service, and uh, grateful to be here with you. Pastor Corey will be back next weekend, so for those of you who may be guests or invited, say, man, you got to hear this awesome guy, Overlook Me. Corey will be back next week, okay? So we're grateful for you guys to be here with us, and I'm grateful to be able to teach through this next passage of Matthew, Matthew chapter 22. And what we do here, if, especially if it's your first time, what we do is we take books of the Bible and we just take, take it through. We go from the first verse of the first book and then we take it to the last verse of, the, of that book. We go through line by line, verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph, all that. So anyway, that's what we've been doing. And we've been doing that through Matthew for a long time now. We are probably gonna finish it up early 2021. And uh, in fact, the last time I taught was the... was March 7th and 8th, which was Time Change Sunday, and I was actually finishing up Matthew chapter 5, so that gives you kind of an idea. And then that was actually the last full weekend we had before this thing called COVID kind of raised its head, so that's kind of a weird connection uh, that uh, it's been seven months since that kind of started affecting our lives, but here's the good news. Jesus is still king, and we're still going strong, right? So that's, yeah, that's good stuff. So anyway, where we are now is we're in Matthew chapter 22. And so Matthew 22 is continuing in this last week of Jesus' life before he is crucified and resurrected, okay? So it started with Sunday, which was Palm Sunday, which is when Jesus came in on the donkey and the people were crying out, Hosanna to the King of Kings, Hosanna to the Son of David. And they were wanting Jesus to be the King, the Messiah, Because in that time, what they were looking for, the Jewish people was a Messiah who would come and overthrow Roman tyranny so that the people of Israel could once again be a nation under God and be ruling the world like God, they felt like God had intended for them. So they were looking for a king to come in, a warrior king, not a king on a donkey, but yet still people thought, okay, well, this is how he's coming in. He's about to take, you know, take names. It's going to be really awesome for us. But what happens is during this week, there becomes an intensification of the conflict between Jesus and the religious rulers. Because Jesus had mostly been doing his work in northern Israel, pretty far away from Jerusalem. So his reputation obviously preceded him, otherwise they wouldn't have had Palm Sunday. But he was still kind of an outlier. But now that he comes into Jerusalem, this last week, the intensification of the conflict between he and the religious leaders reaches its height. It is all-out war, and it's verbal at first, and then it's going to become physical at the end of the week. And so Jesus, what he's doing is he's taking the teachings that the uh, religious leaders had been giving over the traditions, you know, the things that they had lifted up as most important over God's word. And he begins to go after those teachings, whether it's cleaning out the temple, whether it's telling parables, whether it's today we're going to be talking about what's Caesar's and what's God's. Jesus is going after the belief system of these guys. And these guys hate it. They want nothing to do with him. And so they're going to do everything they can to make Jesus look foolish to make him look confused, to make him look as if he is no one you should be following. They don't do a really good job of it, by the way, but that's gonna be what they're trying. So that's what we're gonna be thinking about a little bit today. Now, last week, Pastor Corey finished up chapter 21 of Matthew, and he's a car guy, so he answered the question, are we taking care of our engine? And what he talked about as he wrapped up the sermon was this idea that our bodies, our lives, we're like a car, we're like an engine. And what we have to do is, first of all, we have to be careful with what we pollute our body with, our engine with. We have to be careful about what we allow into our eyes, what we listen to, the things we watch on the TV, the things we do. We don't want to pollute this passion that we have for Jesus Christ. But how do we keep making sure our engine is running well? Well, he talked about things like being in the Word of God. He talked about things like prayer. We talked about things like attending church. We talked about serving And then he used this really cool illustration about the Holy Spirit kind of being the oil for our engine. That's what really keeps us running the way we should be, being submissive to the Holy Spirit, listening to the Holy Spirit, following the Holy Spirit. And so that was what we talked about last week. So for this week, as we come to chapter 22, we're going to be thinking about, do we live under the kingship of Jesus? 
Do we live under the kingship of Jesus? And there are three passages in Matthew chapter 22, verses one through 33. It seems like a lot, but we're gonna break it down to three passages. And the first passage will teach us and remind us that if we're gonna live under his kingdom, that means we've gotta come into the kingdom, but we only do it on his terms. And then the second thing will be this kingdom that we submit to has to be first in our lives over all other kingdoms. And then the last thing we're gonna think about is that the word of God tells us how we live in the kingdom. It gives us kind of the marching order. So we need to know God's word if we're gonna be people who live in submission to the kingship of Christ. So that's kind of the preview of where we're going this morning. And so I'll do my best to try to take you through those things as we look at the text of the scripture. So when you came in, you should have got a notes handout if you wanted one, or you can grab the app on your phone and just open that up. It'll have the scriptures as I read them, as well as the, everything that's on the handout. And then everything I say will be on the screen. Most of it will be up there. And uh, I think we're ready to go. Y'all good? All right. I'm good. It's the last time I got to do this, right? So I'm ready to go, and I have no time constraints. No, I'm just kidding. All right. I'm just kidding. All right. Well, let's pray together. So Father, we are so grateful for this time that we've had to worship you, to sing how good you are to us, that you are the King of Kings, that we will find nothing that's better than you. I thank you, Father, for the work that you've done in the other services, and in advance, we pray and are thankful for what you're going to do here among us, even right now. So Father, I pray that we would turn our attention towards you that you would speak through me, that your Holy Spirit would move through this place, that Jesus would be exalted as King. Father, we do lift up all the other churches in this city and this county that are teaching faithfully your word this morning. May there be lives changed all throughout our city. And we also, Father, lift up what you are doing through our nonprofit work. Thank you so much that we get to go out into this community and make a difference through these amazing nonprofits. Lord, I am rejoicing in what you did yesterday with 1,400 food boxes. That's such an amazing thought to think 1,400 families were blessed yesterday with physical food to take care of their physical needs. But now, Father, I would ask that you would help us to look towards your spiritual food, the Word of God. May you feed us right now. We ask that you'll do this for your glory and for our good as we pray these things in the powerful, wonderful name of our Savior. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, guys, so here we go, chapter 22. First part will be verses one through 14. It's a parable, let's jump in. Once more, Jesus spoke to them in parables. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who gave a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to summon those invited to the banquet, but they didn't want to come. Again, he sent out other servants and said, tell those who are invited, see, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen and fattened calf have been slaughtered and everyone is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went away, one to his own farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, mistreated them and killed them. The king was enraged and he sent out his troops killed those murderers and burned down their city. Then he told his servants, the banquet is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go then to where the roads exit the city and invite everyone you find to the banquet. So those servants went out on the roads and gathered everyone they found, both evil and good. The wedding banquet was filled with guests. When the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed for a wedding. So he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him up hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. So Jesus begins to teach a parable to these guys. So he's been in conflict with these religious leaders. They've been throwing all kinds of insults and questions and stuff at them. And Jesus continues to teach and to share truth. And he does, one of the ways he does is through parables. And parables are basically just short stories that have a spiritual truth behind them. And often you can kind of identify who these characters in the parables represent. For instance, in this parable, it's very easy to see the king represents God the Father. 
that the son who's the wedding is for is God the son, Jesus Christ. And that we are the people and even those religious leaders, we are the people invited to this banquet feast. And so now as Jesus begins to teach, he tells this story because again, if you were invited to the wedding of a prince, it would be an incredibly high honor. I mean, even today, don't we kind of all get up early to watch a wedding in England, right? Where you get to see all these women in the big hats and the guys in the ascots, and they all come, and we think, man, what would it be like if you go into the mail and there was a wedding invitation from the queen to one of her grandson's weddings? Man, that would be so awesome to be there in the, in the Westminster Chapel and get to see all that pomp and circumstance. How cool would that be? It would be an incredible honor. Well, obviously in this time when monarchs were all over the place, it was an amazing honor to be invited to that. But here's the thing, that as the invitation goes out, there are people who say no. They, they don't want to come. And so this king does really an amazing thing. He gives a second invitation. You go, well, what's so amazing about that? I mean, even today, don't we do the thing of like save the date and then you get the invitation later, right? You know, so two invitations is not that big of a deal. But in this time, remember, these kings were absolute rulers over their realm. They had the power of life and death over every citizen that was underneath them. And so for you to say no to an invitation of the king would be highly insulting. And then if you were... A king, you would take care of business immediately right then. But this king that Jesus tells the story of shows amazing grace on behalf of his people and sends out a second invitation, which reminds us of this that I think we need to really drive home. This God we serve is a loving father who wants us to be with him forever. This is what we see already is that Jesus is setting up, hey, my father loves you. And want you to be with him. And this is what he's saying to us even this morning. The father loves you and wants you to be with him forever. So the king's, uh, the king's servants were sent out with the good news that the wedding feast is ready. You heard it, what it said. Hey, I've, I've you know, killed the fatted calf. I've got food ready. The drink's ready. I've got the musicians. We are ready for the wedding. This king, you could tell, loved his son. And he wanted his son to be honored. He wanted the wedding day to be well attended. But here's the interesting thing. It wasn't just about his son. He wanted his people to enter into the joy of his kingdom. He wanted the people to enjoy what was happening. It wasn't just for the honor of the son. It was for the enjoyment of all who would come. The king wanted to share the joy of his son with everyone. And so what's amazing is in this, Jesus is looking at these men who hate him, who want him literally dead. And he's looking at them with compassion in his heart saying, this is my father who wants you too. Even though you hate me right now, even though you want nothing to do with me, even though you want to kill me, the father of my kingdom wants you. Will you listen? Will you humbly accept this offer? But as we know, when these servants go out, there are different responses. Some of the people are very distracted. They don't want to come. In fact, it says one said, I'm too busy with my farm. The other said, I'm too busy with my business. And then there's another group, a third group that's amazing to me. These are the men who take the king's servants and they mistreat them, which means they basically torture them and then they kill them. I mean, can you imagine taking those servants who in that time, again, have the same authority as the king? So in other words, the way they were treating the servants was what they thought about the king. They were prideful towards him, and they showed their true disdain for what they thought was a terrible king. Now, here's the truth, that today there are people who still respond to the offer of the gospel in the same way. There are people who are too distracted you say, look, hey, maybe I'll get around to Jesus after I get my, uh, my career off the ground. Or maybe I'll turn to Jesus after I get married or when I have kids. That's a big one, isn't it? Oh, after we have kids, we'll settle down and then we'll go follow Jesus. There are all kinds of distractions around that keep us from receiving the invitation of this king of our father. And then there are people who are just plain opposed to the things of God. They hate everything to do with church. They hate everything to do with Jesus. They hate everything to do with God. They want nothing to do with Christians. They just hate this stuff. 
There's a lot of us in this room who have come out of that kind of a thought towards the things of God. We were in opposition and wanted nothing to do with him. So these men who had received this invitation, and they did it, no, sorry, king, we don't want nothing to do with you. And notice what Jesus says. He says, this king was enraged, and rightly so. I mean, here he is. He's the ruler of his kingdom. He sends his invitation to those within his kingdom, and they are too busy, or they are people who don't care. And so they insult the king. They treat him as if he is nothing, and they treat the representatives the same way. So what does the king do? (laughs) The king goes after them. He takes them into custody. He kills them and burns down their city. Now, again, from our perspective, we're going, wow, that's a little over the top, right? That's a little too much. But in that day, the people, I can even imagine the Pharisees nodding their head going, yep, if I was the king, that's what I'd do as well. That was just the way they lived in that time. And one of the things we learn from this, that again, this is a picture of the God we serve. And there's a lot of people who think that our God is this powerless deity, this old man, this kind of old fuddy that just sits on his throne, has no power, doesn't care about anything, and is undeserving of our affection and our attention. But what is Jesus teaching us? No, we have a father who is just. And what does just mean? It means he must do what is right, that he must punish rebellion. And there is a day coming when this Jesus, who is soon to be a lamb slain, will come back as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and he will make all things right. That day is coming. He is not just Jesus meek and mild. Now he is the Lion of Judah, and he will make things right. You cannot just treat Jesus any way you want to and think he's okay with it. He's not. So the king's son is going to be honored. There's going to be a wedding, and it's going to have guests. So what does the king do? With these people who rejected him for whatever reason, he says now to his servants, go, go to the farthest realms of my kingdom. Go to the crossroads. Go to wherever people are and invite them to the wedding feast. But here's the interesting thing, I think, there. He says, I don't care if they're good or bad. I don't care if they're moral or immoral. I don't care if they love me or they're evil. Just invite them to come. And what is that teaching us? Entrance into the kingdom does not depend upon your moral condition. It depends upon who will honor the son. Which isn't that the good news of the gospel? Because how many of us were good before we came into the kingdom? The beauty of the gospel is it doesn't matter what your past is. It matters who you're willing to submit to. And that is the story of the gospel. Anyone who will come to the son can enter into the kingdom. But what do we have a tendency to do? We have a tendency to limit who we think is worthy to come into the kingdom. And how do I know that? Well, there's probably most of us, we have like maybe a top five or a top 10 of people we think are un, will never be saved or, or they're incredibly unworthy. They can be people we know. They can be family members, people that are in our neighborhood and in our city. They can be national celebrities or political people. We have a list. Oh, that person, ugh. I mean, truly hell will freeze over if that person ever got saved, right? But here's the problem. Most of us never put ourselves in the top 10 because most of us think more highly of ourselves than we should. We think, oh, well, yeah, I was worthy to enter into the kingdom, but man, these people aren't. And dear friends, when you say that, you might as well be saying that I am not worthy to be in the kingdom either because what is the common denominator amongst every human being you come into contact with? We are all sinners who deserve the wrath of God. I mean, Jesus says this, right? He says this again, many will be invited, but few will be chosen. Why? Because of our sinfulness and our desire to do things our way instead of God's way. But Jesus never limits the call. That's why he's a friend of prostitutes. That's why he's a friend of tax collectors. That's why he's a friend of me and yours. Because he doesn't limit the call. And so as this group of people show up, the party is happening, right? The music's playing. The son and his bride are at the big table. Everybody's celebrating. They're eating and they're drinking. They're having a great time. And the king is working the room. 
All right, he's working around. Hey, thanks for coming. I'm glad you're here, you know? And he's just having a great time. And then he comes up on this one guy who is improperly dressed. He's not dressed for a wedding. And he says to him, hey, friend, how did you get in without proper wedding clothes? And again, for some of us, we go, well, what's the big deal? Well, the big deal is that there was a culture there that when you came to a wedding, you dressed for the wedding. And if you didn't, it was a disrespect to the groom and to the one, the father. And so basically what this man had done is said, I know it's a wedding for the king's son. I know I'm supposed to wear their good stuff, but basically, you know, I don't care, king. I'm coming the way I want to come. And so you know that he understands this. How? Because when the king says, friend, how did you get in here without the wedding clothes? The Bible says, and the man was speechless. It'd be like a wedding crasher, <laughs> right? And it gets caught. So can I see your invitation? Uh, 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 you know, how'd you get in here? You don't have the way. Uh, and what does the king do? The king says, tie him up so he can't get back in. And he casts them out. And Jesus says he casts them out to a place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. You see, what Jesus is teaching us is that, again, many are invited, few are chosen. If you're gonna come to the kingdom, if you're gonna come to this wedding feast, you come on the terms of the king, not on your own. And most of us don't like that at all. I mean, we like to set our own terms, don't we? Hey, Jesus, I'll be yours if you let me keep this. Jesus, this thing about denying yourself, taking up your cross and following you, okay, that's for someone else. But for me, Lord, I still wanna keep this in my life. I wanna do this in my life. I have these plans in my life. Lord, you let me keep that, you can have me. But if you won't let me do that, hey, I'm not coming into the kingdom. So there are people who have greater care for other things. They think, hey, my career is more important. My family's more important. My partying's more important. My lifestyle's more important. All these are way more important than God. They're distracted, so they won't come. Again, there are people who just hate the things of God. They won't come either. But then others will show up thinking they're showing up on their own terms, not Jesus' terms. And the amazing thing is they're going to be rejected. And you say, but wait, isn't showing up the important thing? I mean, as long as you just come, isn't that the most important thing? Well, I want to take you back to something Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount to remind you. In Matthew chapter seven, verses 21 through 23, Jesus said this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my father in heaven. And then amazingly, this is what Jesus says. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name and do many miracles in your name? And I don't know about you, but it sounds like the will of the father that these people are saying they did. I mean, isn't that what we're supposed to be about, right? Speaking Christ's name to the, the world. We're supposed to be teaching and preaching. We're supposed to be taking out the kingdom of darkness, fighting against the devil and the demons and all that that's uh, enemies of God. We're supposed to see God doing miracles, not only of salvation, but other things that God wants to do that will blow people's minds. I mean, these people are saying, God, that's what we did. We were doing your will. And Jesus says, I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. I mean, have we ever really thought about that? So what is the problem? Well, the key is you lawbreakers. Well, how were they breaking the law? I mean, they were casting out demons. They were prophesying. They were doing miracles. How in the world is that breaking the law? What they did is they came into Jesus' kingdom and they showed their resume. They said, look at everything we've done for you, God. And because we've done these things for you, we deserve entrance into your kingdom based on our good deeds. And the reason Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you, is because the only way you get into the kingdom is by grace through faith. We do not get into the kingdom based on what we've done for Jesus. We get into the kingdom by trusting in what Jesus has done for us. That's the only hope we have. You know, people will sometimes ask the question, hey, if you were to stand before Jesus and ask him, why should you let me into, or he should say, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say to him? I can tell you there's only the one thing you can do is plead the blood of Jesus. 
That's the only hope any of us have of ever entering into the kingdom. Which means what? You can't dress any way you want and do anything you want and think your resume is gonna get you in. You gotta come on his terms and you come by grace through faith. Next part. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to trap him by what he said. So they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you are truthful and teach truthfully the way of God. You don't care what anyone thinks, nor do you show partiality. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Perceiving their malicious intent, Jesus said, why are you testing me, hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the tax. They brought him a denarius. Whose image and inscription is this, he asked them. Jesus, uh, excuse me, Caesar's, they said to him. Then he said to them, give then to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. When they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. So now we get into some questions that are gonna be asked of Jesus. He's told this parable. Now it's those people, the religious leaders turn to question him. And so we start off with this first one. And what happens is we have these two groups of people, the Pharisees and the Herodians, who hate each other. And why do they hate each other? Well, first of all, the Pharisees hated Rome. They wanted nothing to do with Rome. They hated the fact that they had to be submissive to the Roman governor and the government. And so they wanted nothing more than the Messiah to come and again, cast off Roman rule so that Israel could rule the nations. And so they wanted nothing to do with that. And then you have the Herodians. And some of us remember when Jesus was born, King Herod was the king, right? And then when he died, there was four sons. The Romans divided up the territories of Israel into four areas. So there were different Herods that ruled over these territories that were living at this time. And what is going on now, these Herodians are under the uh, rulership of Rome. They're friendly with Rome because that's where they get their power from. So they wanted and liked Roman rule. So you got the Pharisees who want nothing to do with Rome. You got the Herodians who are friendly with Rome. They hate each other, but they hate Jesus more. You ever heard the thing, the enemy of my enemy is my friend? Well, that's what you have here. And so what they do is they come to Jesus and they ask a question based on taxes. 2,000 years ago, where are they still debating? Taxes. Guess what will happen 2,000 years from now? They'll probably still be talking about taxes, right? So they bring a question to Jesus. And what they hoped is that this question would put Jesus at such a place where he's going to tick off one of the groups. And they're going to realize, hey, this Jesus who we think is something is really nothing. They hoped that he would lose favor with everyone. So the enemy set up a question with a load of sarcasm and false praise. Teacher, we know you have come from God and that you always tell the truth. I mean, they were dripping with sarcasm. And here's an interesting thing. They do make a true statement. We know that you judge impartially and that you do not respect anyone. You will always tell the truth. They got that part right. But everything else, they were just being sarcastic toward him. And here's the interesting thing. We got to remember that how we speak reveals the condition of our hearts. Friends, I don't know about you, but the discourse that we see today in our society, it tears me up because people speak with sarcasm, snarky to tear down people instead of building people up. And the problem is Christians fall into those same categories. We treat people with our words as if they are nothing. We weaponize our words and we use them against people. And again, for those people who will say things like, well, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Hey, there are things that you remember that someone said to you 30 years ago that you still carry the wound of that, don't you? Yeah, words hurt. Sarcasm hurts. We've got to make sure that we are careful about what we say, which means we gotta be careful about what's in our heart. Because whatever is in there will spill out. And it'll either spill out verbally or on social media. Those are words too, and those matter too, you know. In fact, earlier in Matthew, Jesus says, every careless word men shall speak. They will render an account of it on the day of judgment. Because by your words, you will be justified, or by your words, 
you will be condemned. Watch your words. But obviously, these men didn't care about truth. They didn't care about Jesus. All they wanted to do was destroy him, and their words proved it. So Jesus is asked, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And he knows that they have only one goal behind that question, which is to destroy him. They know that. Jesus knows this. And how do we see that? Well, Jesus calls them hypocrites. And because why are they called hypocrites? Because they are pretending to be people that they aren't. A hypocrite is someone who pretends to be something that he or she isn't. They were saying, oh, teacher, we know you have truth and we just want to learn from you. Well, that, that was a lie. They were being hypocritical. And just as a free thing here, I know there are some of us who will sometimes go, oh, I'm not coming to church today because my heart's not really in it. So if I showed up, I would be a hypocrite. Well, again, a hypocrite is someone who pretends to be something he's not. If you're a follower of Jesus, he commands us to gather together and worship him. You're not being hypocritical. You're being obedient if you show up, even when you don't feel like it. That's not being a hypocrite. That's being submissive to the king. So the question here that these men are asking Jesus has to deal with authority and legitimacy. Who is the greatest authority and do governments have legitimate authority? And that's a question we still ask ourselves today, isn't it? Who has the greatest authority and is it legitimate? But here's the thing. We don't run to the news organizations. We don't run to blogs. We don't run to any podcast. We run to the word of God to answer those questions. Jesus tells us what our relationship with all authorities should be. So Jesus does this. He says, okay, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Give me the coin used to pay the tax. So they give Jesus a denarius, and a denarius was a day's wage for a common laborer. That was the tax. So Jesus takes the coin and looks at it. On one side of that coin would have been a picture of Caesar and an inscription about Caesar. And then on the back side would have been an image of one of Rome's gods. So a picture of Caesar on one side, a god on the other one. And what does Jesus say? He looks at the side with Caesar and asks, whose inscription is there? Well, it's Caesar's. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. So what does he do? He legitimizes the authority of the government by giving to Caesar what is Caesar's. And you say, well, what in the world does that really mean? Well, I've given you two references here, Paul and Peter. Paul in Romans 13 and Peter in 1 Peter 2 speak about what Jesus' teaching make clear about government and how we respond to it. And if you read those passages, here's what you're going to hear Paul and Peter say. Pray for the emperor. Submit to the emperor. Pay taxes if they're due. Pray for those who are leadership over you. Pray for the people who govern you. Pray for them. And you go, okay, I get it. But what if the government is bad? What if it's undeserving? What if my Caesar is undeserving of my prayers and my honor and respect? It's interesting, isn't it, that Jesus is saying this on Tuesday and on Friday he's going to be standing before Pontius Pilate a representative of Caesar who will say, yes, you can crucify him. Isn't it interesting that both Peter and Paul, as they are writing this, by that time, there's a man named Nero who's the Caesar, and he was a horrible man and hated Christians to the point where he's the God that would take Christians, he would put them in oil alive, he would then hang them on poles on his driveway to his palace and light them on fire so they would become human torches. In fact, both Peter and Paul are martyred under the rule of Nero, who they said, honor the king, pray for him. Friends, it has nothing to do with whether the person in the White House or in the Senate or in the House of Representatives, it has nothing to do with who they are. It has everything to do with what Jesus says. He tells us that there is a place for government. And it's us as Christians, we have a responsibility to pray for those leaders. But then he says, render to God what is God's. So if the image of the coin has Caesar on it, you give that to him. But what he says is, look, 
We are people who bear the image of God. We belong to him. Caesar doesn't create us. Only God does. And Caesar certainly didn't die for us. Jesus does. Which teaches us that everything belongs to God, most especially us. We are created in his image. And so we look at all things now, not through the lens of politics, not through the lens of all these other things. We look at things through the word of God, through Jesus Christ, and through his kingdom. That's how we look at everything. No longer does the government rule us. No longer do even my own thoughts rule. It's what Jesus says. That's the most important thing. Christians should be the very best citizens as we love God and love people. We should be the very best citizens in this city, in this state, and in this country because we love Jesus and we love people. Now, let me just add something here. I said this earlier, but I want to drive it home. We are created in the image of God. What we have done in our society today is we have begun to isolate people, categorize people, and then hurl insults and attacks and hatred at the people that don't fit our definition of who's good, who's right, who's whatever. So what do we do? Well, we divide people by their politics. We divide people by their gender choices. We divide people by their religious choices. We divide people by their skin color and their ethnicities. We divide people by socioeconomic conditions. We separate people by where they live, where they grew up. We separate people by all kinds of ways so that then we can hurl insult at them, so that we can hate them. So I want you to remember these two things. When you look at people, Remember two things about every single human being that you look at. Number one, they are created in the image of God, which means they are worthy of our love. And number two, they are sinners like you and they need a savior like you do. Friends, that's what levels all of us. When I begin to see that every human being in this room and in the nation and in our world bears the image of our beautiful savior, why would I hate what Jesus lives in and what he's made and what he's created. Don't hate that. Yeah, they do some bad things, but so have you. That's why we need a savior. It's time that we start looking at people the way Jesus looks at them instead of through the lens of our particular ideologies or political preferences or even our religion. We need to look at people through the word of God and through Jesus alone. Last part. That same day, some Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came up to him and questioned him. Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother is to marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first got married and died. Having no offspring, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second also, and the third and so on to all seven. Last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection then, whose wife will she be of the seven? For they all had married her. Now, verse 29, just remember this verse, okay? I'll hit back on it in just a moment. Jesus answered them, you are mistaken because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now, concerning the resurrection of the dead, haven't you read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. So the uh, Pharisees, the Herodians, they had their shot at Jesus failed. So now this group of people called the Sadducees take their shot at Jesus, see if they can trip him up. Now the Sadducees were the religious liberals of that day. They believed a couple of things. First of all, they only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch, or the Torah. That's the only books that they recognized. Second of all, they were, were anti-spiritual stuff. They did not believe in a resurrection. They did not believe in demons. They did not believe in angels. They did not believe in resurrection after death. They believed when you die, that was it. And so they were these people and these were people that, because they had these beliefs, they had come up with this question, which they thought made the resurrection look silly. 
And I'm sure that they had done it with the Pharisees and the other teachers and had success. And so they thought, hey, let's try it on Jesus. Everybody else has failed to answer the question. We'll see how good Jesus does. Have you ever known someone that questions you about Christianity so they throw out these wild questions to see if they can trip you up? You know, one of my favorites is, hey, what about the person in Africa who's never heard the gospel and he dies? What's Jesus gonna do with him? Anybody ever had that question? That's one of the favorite questions people love to ask pastors. And so they got this question. They say, hey, we're gonna give Jesus a chance to answer this, but we think he'll fail miserably. So this question, this story, it's, it's fantastical in a lot of ways. So why is this such an important thing? What's the deal? Well, for the people of Israel, the land of Israel was the most important thing. Because when God called Abram out of the land of Ur in uh, excuse me, Genesis 12, God said this, I will take you to the land I will show you and you will become a great nation there. And then to Isaac and to Jacob, God made those same promises. I promise you that your descendants will live in this land. And even when Jacob goes to, uh, to Egypt, what is the promise that one day the people will come out of Egypt to the promised land and under Joshua they do. They get to the promised land. So the land was incredibly important because it's tied to the blessings that God promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So you get your land, you get married, but then you don't have children. Well, who gets the land after you? Because if you lose your land, it's like you lose your legacy for your family. And so the Jews came up with a way to answer that question, all right? And so what they developed was this idea that if a man dies before he and his wife can have children, then the widow is to marry the nearest living relative, have a child, and then that child would not belong to the nearest living relative, it would belong to the dead person, and then would carry on that name of that dead man. If you've ever read the book of Ruth, you get kind of a picture of what that looks like with the idea of the kinsman redeemer. And so they start telling this story again about what would happen. And it's an amazing story. <laughs> so what if a brother dies before he and his wife have children? So the nearest relative is the next oldest brother, and he dies, and then it goes through all seven brothers. First of all, it sounds like a Hallmark movie. <laughs> or it sounds like something on like Netflix that's a documentary of a woman who killed all seven of her husbands, right? I mean, this is so fantastical, and that's the whole point that the Sadducees are trying to get to. The resurrection means nothing, because let me give you a situation that probably wouldn't happen, happen but if it did, whose wife would she be in the resurrection? Now, before we answer that, just remember this, that there are questions that people ask for information's sake because they really want to learn. But then there are questions that people ask to confuse or to accuse. And if you've watched any debates, if you watch any of our political talk today, if you watch a way a lot of people yell and curse at each other, most people don't ask questions because they really want to learn. They ask questions so they can accuse people or confuse them. We need to be people who are willing to learn. Even if we're learning from someone we don't agree with, we've got to learn to listen, not hurl insults and ask questions to confuse. So Jesus knew the scriptures. Because what did he say to them? You know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. So what didn't they know about the scripture? Well, remember I said they only believed, the Sadducees only believed in the first five books of the Bible. So Jesus quotes Exodus. Now he could have quoted the whole, anywhere from the Old Testament because whether you know this or not, the Old Testament speaks of resurrection. It's not just the New Testament. And if you say, Mike, can you help me with that? Send me an email, and I'll be glad to give you some scriptures from the Old Testament that point to resurrection. But Jesus pointed to Exodus, and you remember when Moses is on the mountain, sees a bush that's burning but doesn't get consumed. He begins to hear God's voice speaking to him from the bush. And one of the things that God says to him is, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Not, I was their God until they died. I am their God even now. And this was thousands of years after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had died. Here is the beautiful picture, what God is saying to these people and to us. You better know the scriptures because that's where you're gonna find the truth. 
They didn't know the scripture. And then when he talks about the idea of resurrection and whose wife, he says, look, people will be like angels. They won't be angels. Make, make sure you get that right. Because can I give you my definition of what hell would be? My definition of hell would be wearing a diaper on a cloud with a harp with little wings for eternity. <laughs> yeah, give me that heaven. I'm looking forward to that. No, that would be terrible. In fact, what does the Bible teach us? The Bible teaches that we will rule over angels. The Bible teaches us that Jesus died for his people who are created in his image. Angels are not bearing the image of God. We do. We are way better than angels. I know some of us want to make people feel better when a loved one dies. Oh, God just got another angel in heaven. Look, don't get your theology from it's a wonderful life. There is no Clarence up there, okay, who's trying to earn his wings. We get our theology from the word of God, and that's what Jesus is saying. And he's saying, look, in the resurrection, it's gonna be better than you could ever imagine. In fact, because resurrection, when we get our resurrection bodies, they will be eternal. There's no dying off of our our descendants, so there's no need for procreation. So there won't be any need for marriages. And I know for some of us, we go, oh, I mean, I really love my spouse. I would love for... I can promise you this. The Bible says no man has seen, no ear has heard what God has prepared for those who love him. As much as we love our our spouses now, you're going to be on an even higher level with them in the resurrection because there will be no sin, no snarkiness, no, you know, none of that. And that's what Jesus is saying. Look, the power of God to make your existence in the resurrection even better than you can ever imagine, even better than the best marriage Trust that God has the power to do that. Trust his word and trust his power. And so the crowds and the religious leaders are amazed and astonished by Jesus. Why? Because he has two things, authority and wisdom. Now we know people who have great authority, but no wisdom, don't we? We know people who have great wisdom, but no authority. Jesus had both, and he had those because of who he is. He's the son of God. So when the son of God speaks, there's authority and wisdom coming from him. But here's the cool news. You and I cannot both have wisdom and authority as well. But it's not our own. It's given to us by the presence of the Holy Spirit and by the knowledge of his word. If you will spend time in God's word and you will ask the Holy Spirit to help you to understand the word so that you can proclaim his word, so that you can be full of wisdom, the Bible says God will answer that prayer and when you need it, the Holy Spirit will remind you what you need to say. You can be someone that someone looks at and goes, wow, where did that come from? And you're gonna be looking at yourself going, wow, where did that come from? And you're gonna remember, hey, Jesus promised that Whenever I need help, the Spirit and the Word will be there for me. That's a cool thing to think about. So we talked about three things that we need to submit. First, it's His kingdom. It's not yours. It's not ours. So entrance into the kingdom is by grace through faith. It is by grace through faith alone. It isn't earned. It is a gift. It's a gift. You cannot work your way into heaven. Because it's given by grace, then the call goes out to everyone without exception. Without exception. Do not ever limit the gospel because you think someone is unworthy. Because if you think they're unworthy, you better look at yourself and remember you were unworthy as well. Jesus does not clean us up to save us. He saves us to clean us up. That's his work. Our work is to go and tell. But we have to understand that there are distractions and disagreements that people have with our king that will keep many of them from joining the kingdom. They'll reject it because they're too busy or too opposed. But that's not our responsibility, friends. We plant seeds, we water seeds. It's God that brings the growth. We're just responsible for going and telling. And living in this kingdom means then that we have to humbly submit to him. You want in this kingdom, you come on his terms, not yours. But if we come into this kingdom, we have to remember that his kingdom comes first. And this is, uh, you know, Corey, every now and then says a tweetable moment. This is my tweetable moment right here. We are citizens of the kingdom of God who happen to be American, not Americans who happen to be Christian. 
We have to be a people who realize that there is only one king and his name is Jesus. One king. And we can love our country. We can be grateful for our country. We can be grateful for everything that has happened in our past and we can look forward hopefully to a good future. But at the end of the day, it is God's kingdom that must come first in every person who claims to be a Christian. And why does it always come first? (laughs) For two reasons. It's eternal and because God says so. Now, what do I mean by eternal? Here's the deal. There's coming a day when there will no longer exist the United States of America. There won't be a Canada, a Mexico, a Uganda, an El Salvador. There won't be an India. There won't be a Russia. There won't be a Yugoslavia. There won't be any of these nations. There will only be people who are worshiping under King Jesus alone. That day is coming. His kingdom is forever. But then Jesus said, you must make his kingdom first. How do I know that? Matthew 6, 33, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these other things will be given to you. The reason we are Christians first and not Americans first is because Jesus says his kingdom is what we seek. We don't seek the United States. We seek the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So if you want to be a good citizen, you need to be a disciple of Jesus and know his word. There are too many of us who know our party platforms better than we know this word. And here's the thing about Jesus. He won't let you peg him as to what his political affiliation is. I see bumper stickers, you know, that say, oh, Jesus is a Republican. Jesus is a Democrat. Jesus is a Libertarian. And what I say to that is yes, because there are times when you read about Jesus and he looks like a flaming liberal. And then there are other times you read something Jesus does and he looks like a religious fanatic. And then there are other things where you look at and he's a Libertarian. Do what you will. Well, how can he be all three of those things? Because his kingdom is not of this world. I mean, Jesus is the one that says, if you want to be first, be last. That makes no sense in this world, does it? If you want to be a ruler, you got to be a servant. That makes no sense. Jesus's kingdom turns everything on its head. We have got to be a people that learn his word and love Jesus more than we love the things about this world. Because all nations are under King Jesus without exception. There are some of you that whenever we find out what the results of the election are, you're going to go, oh, praise God, he's on the throne. Or some of us may go, oh, no, God, he's blown it. That's just where we are right now. But can I assure you, no matter, again, who is sitting in the Oval Office, no matter who is sitting in the Senate, no matter who's sitting in the House of Representatives, no matter who's our mayor, Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. And his kingdom is forever. So we have to keep God's kingdom first. And then lastly, we have to have his word his way. Most people don't accept Jesus' invitation to join his kingdom. Why? Because they don't want to submit to this word. Jesus says, do this. We say, "Eh, not so much, Jesus. Jesus says, fine, you go your way. But if you want to come to my kingdom, you've got to submit to this. Are we willing to submit to it? And you say, well, why should I? Well, I love this question that Pastor Corey loves to ask people. So how has living your way worked out so far? Oh, I don't want to do anything with this word. Okay, well, let me say, how are you doing with your guilt? How's how's your guilt feeling for you? Hey, are you at peace? Do you feel good about your life? I mean, do you rest at night or do you feel anxious and overwhelmed? Hey, how's your relationships with people? How are your relationships with others, within your family, outside your family? Hey, does money give you peace or does it make you more anxious? Do you get freaked out when the Dow Jones goes down and you start losing your mind? Or are you following Jesus and knowing I can rest in him? And oh, by the way, let me just say, if you come to Jesus, it doesn't mean it's going to be rainbows and unicorns. Jesus said, in this world, you're going to have trouble. Friends, this is not your best life now because it is. We all deserve a refund. (laughs) My hope is not in this world. It's in the world to come. And that's what I'm living for. How's your way working out so far for you? 
And so what we've got to do is we got to quit standing over the word and saying, I'm gonna tell you, Jesus, what your word means. We have to go under it and say, Lord, you tell me what it means. I don't tell Jesus what to think. He tells me what to think. I don't tell Jesus what to do. He tells me what to do. And some of us go, I will not bow my knee to anyone that tells me what to do. Then you can't enter in the kingdom. The kingdom is about submission. It's about saying, Jesus is my king. He's my Lord. I submit to him. It's all about submission. That's what the whole Bible really is all about because in the Garden of Eden, the pride of Adam and Eve is what caused the fall of man. They wanted to be like God. And guess what we've been doing ever since then? We've been trying to be like God. You wanna come into his kingdom, you gotta go his way by submitting to his word. But here's the good news. When you do, the Bible does what? It shows us the way to freedom. There's a great theologian. His name is Bob Dylan. And uh, <laughs> Bob Dylan had a record called Slow Train Coming or Long Train Coming. One of the, but the, the song he had on there is you got to serve somebody. You got to serve somebody. Now, friends, hear this. Every single one of us in here, we're slaves to something or someone. And that may be your slave to you to your own passions and desires, but we're all slaves. But here's the difference. We can either be slaves to all the things of this world, including ourselves, and be bound down with chains and addictions and hatred and all kinds of evil. Or we can be a slave of Jesus and be set free. Be set free. Being a slave to Jesus doesn't mean that you lose your life. It means you get your best life through him. That's the hope of the gospel. He takes you and all the crap of your life and he makes it better. And one day he will make you perfect like him. So what now? For some of you, you need to respond to the king's offer. He is offering you now entrance into his kingdom if you will repent of your sins and trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Trusting in him means, hey, I believe Jesus died for me. I believe he died on the cross for my sins. I believe he's risen from the dead. I will follow him. Some of you, you don't have to come talk to me. You don't have to do anything. Right where you are, you can just say, Lord, I give you my life. I'm tired of these chains. Do that today. Some of you can ask questions. Maybe you are like, what's this Christianity? All this, some of this stuff I've talked about, maybe it, it confuses you or you want more clarification. Pastor Isaac is right up here. Pastor Isaac knows all the answers. <laughs> he does. Pastor Isaac loves Jesus. He loves God's word. And if you need to talk to someone, come up to him and say, man, He's talked about this submission stuff. Can you help me understand that? This word thing, can you help me understand that? Pastor Isaac can help you. He really can. He'll have coffee with you or go to lunch with you. Listen to him. Come humble yourself and come ask. Maybe life, you know, is just going really tough right now and you need to pray with someone. There's gonna be men and women on both sides that you can come and just say, hey, will you pray with me? And we'd love to do that. And then last thing, you can take communion. When you came in, you should have got one of those little cups that has a little piece of bread at the top and a little juice there at the bottom. And the only thing we ask you to do when you take that is to repent. And what do we mean by that? The body, the cup, or excuse me, the bread represents the body of Jesus broken for sinners. His blood, the wine, blood shed for us sinners. And for you to eat and to drink that but not repent it's to say, look, Jesus, I know you died for sinners, but you didn't really die for me. I'm just gonna keep living my way, my own way, life my own way. That is not repentance. If you eat and drink, what you are doing is you're submitting yourself to him and his kingdom. And for some of us, we may need to repent of some of these things we've talked about today. But for some of you, this may be the day that you repent and believe for the very first time and then take and eat and drink. Rejoice that the king has accepted you into his kingdom. This can be an awesome day for so many of us, Christian as well as those who are not believers, if we will submit to him. Let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful for your word and the truth of your word. 
Father, it stings sometimes when it exposes our weaknesses, when it exposes our rebellion. But you have the words of life. And so now for these, my friends, Father, would you move among us as we take communion, as we pray, and as we ask questions? And would you do a miracle here in this place, even now? We ask through the powerful and wonderful name of our Savior. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. You can take communion now.